We're looking this morning at God's remedy for guilt. Remember we said last week that guilt has to do with real sin, not just guilt feelings. And that's my first point in the uh, bulletin outline there, that God's broken law makes for guilt. Romans 3, verse 20, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Very important. And this is because, as John wrote, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, or breaking the law. 1 John 3, verse 4. Now, I pointed out last week that one does not have to possess a Bible to discover that God's law requires of us a certain course of life. God has written his moral code in the hearts of the most wicked pagan in the most backwoods country in the world so that all men without exception know right from wrong. Say, well, I... I've, I've heard that truth is what you make it. So people have their truth. And you can say, well, that's true to you, but it's not true to me. No, truth is not subjective. It is absolute. And it's based upon the integrity of God. So even the aborigine, who's never seen a Bible, is responsible to God for God's glory and marvelous nature is declared in the things that he has created so that Paul says they are without excuse. And on top of that, as we've just noted, if God writes his law in our heart, in our gives us a moral conscience, then we know right from wrong, even if you don't have a Bible, or if you have a Bible and you don't read it. Because God's law is everywhere codified, yes, in the Bible, or stamped upon the conscience, when there is a breach of God's law, guilt is the result. This is what Paul means when he says, Through the law we become conscious of sin. Romans 3 verse 20. He's saying we wake up to our position. It's not always pleasant to wake up, but it is always beneficial. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 13 and following. Let's say it this way, that it's a great mercy of God to disturb your spiritual sleep. People don't think about this. It is. It's a great mercy for him to disturb you. It is his grace to wake you up. A guilty conscience as a lawbreaker is your wake-up call. One of them. Those undisturbed will sleep away the day of grace. And in a spiritual coma, they will sleep their way all the way to hell. You think the criminals are bothered uh, by their disobedience to God's law? No, they actually relish in it lots of times. And they pray, take pride in their, um, in their wickedness. Well, they're asleep. They're asleep spiritually. 
to the demands of God's law. And if they stay in that state, if God doesn't awaken them out of that state, like I said, they will sleep their way all the way to hell. So Paul writes, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep. He recognizes that, you see. But let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. You see how he's making the analogy there. They're asleep with regard to sin, too. We're commanded in the scriptures, God doesn't want us to be drunk. But if you're asleep spiritually, you get drunk at night and you're still asleep. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That's what we're destined for. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and following. How can anyone be so at peace as a lawbreaker before God as to be unconcerned, undisturbed about his or her eternal destiny? Yet there are people like that. And unless we wake up and do something about it, Nature will take its course. And what is nature's course? Paul says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Okay, what does that nature desire? He goes on. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Uh-oh, then they're in big trouble, are they not? Romans 8, verse 5 through 8. You need to wake up to this reality. I need to wake up to this reality. We don't want to please God. If all we have is our sinful nature. Worse, Paul says, you cannot please God. His law is too high for you, too good for you. Remember that Paul himself was a Pharisee. He was a seminary trained theological student. He studied the law of God. He knew it so well that as a rabbi he could teach others. Paul believed that he did God a great service by what? Persecuting Christians. So he knew the law and all the regulations concerning that, but he was still a wicked person. Like all the rest of the people, he was asleep to his own lawlessness. Isn't that interesting about us that we can see sin in others when we can't see sin in ourselves? But James warns us about that he says look into the mirror of god's word and see yourself a mirror reflects what you are and in this case james is saying the bible has some things to say about you so look into it and look at it as a mirror so like all the rest of the people paul was asleep to his own lawlessness but god woke him up 
And he used the law to do it. Listen to Paul's testimony. He says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now that Paul's telling you something there. He's telling you and me that the sin that he had to wrestle with was commandment number 10. As he worked his way through 1 through 9, he felt pretty good about himself. But when he got to commandment number 10, that all changed. He says, I was feeling pretty good. And I would not have known about sin except for commandment number 10, which said, do not covet. But he goes goes on. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. But once I was alive apart from the law... In other words, they say, I was just doing great. I was doing fine all through the first nine commandments of God. I was feeling pretty good about myself. Not a care in the world. I taught God's word to others. I was convinced that they could not have any better teacher than Mr. Perfect Me. But when the commandment came, he says, sin sprang to life. Now, it was always there, but what he's saying is he's awakened to it. He finally sees it. Sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Romans 7, verse 7 and following. Well, that's what the law does, see? The law comes to us and it says, thou shalt not. And we might be feeling pretty good about ourselves until the Spirit of God uses those thou shalt nots to indict us and make us feel the guilt of our sin. Conviction of sin. Guilt feelings because of sin. That is God's wake-up call to you and to me that something deadly is at work in your soul. A cancer is there eating at your vitals. And unless it is dealt with in the most severe terms, it's going to kill you. God's broken law makes for guilt. And that's good. If you do not try to deny it, if you don't try to hide it, it's good. Well, praise God. If you feel guilty, because it is an indication that God is after you. He is after you. He is praising, he's he's going to work in your life so that you cannot run and hide. It's good for the law to have this convicting work in our lives. It means your conscience is alive and active. There are scores of people in our country, in our world, where their sin never, ever bothers them. They just go merrily on their wicked way, and that's the way it is. So point two then, unresolved guilt 
paralyzes initially, but you know it will kill you eventually if it's unresolved. When David allowed his lustful look at Bathsheba to go unchecked as she took her evening bath, he burned in his heart for her. He just had to have her. And so he commanded his servants to fetch her. She was a married woman, he knew that. Married to one of his noble soldiers, a good man, an honorable man named Uriah. Uriah's name means Jehovah is my light or Jehovah is my fire. Wouldn't that be a great name to have? That was his name. And he was a man on fire for God, willing to serve both God and king in any righteous way that he could. When Bathsheba became pregnant with David's child, he embarked on an elaborate scheme to bring Uriah home from the front line. His intent was that Uriah would make love to Bathsheba so that the love child in her womb would be thought to be Uriah's child and not David's. But David's wicked plan was foiled quite unintentionally and quite innocently because... Uriah could not bring himself to make love with his wife while his fellow soldiers were deprived of their wives on the battlefield. Who thinks like that? Well, he thought like that. And so David added wicked to wicked, murder to adultery, and even had the audacity to pen an order to his commanding general and send it using Uriah himself as the courier which ordered David's general to place Uriah in the thick of the battle where he would likely be killed. And you know the history. He was killed. Honorable Uriah never took a peek at the note. Uriah, the man of integrity, carried his own death warrant the field marshal who did as King David commanded him. Now for a very long time, David believed that he had gotten away with these two monstrous transgressions of God's law. But during that time, his conscience gave him no peace. The two crimes, adultery and murder. But our text says... Verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent, David is speaking, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What is this? Well, he became restless. In the daytime, aches and pains made him groan. At night he couldn't sleep. The weather was just fine, but his strength and vitality was sapped as though the mugginess of high humidity were suffocating him. What was wrong? Verse 5 talks about the guilt of his sin. He was paralyzed with guilt. He could not shake himself loose from this sin. And the scripture tells us that he made a home for Bathsheba in her pregnancy. He married her. He acknowledged her son as his. But there was no joy in this. 
Aren't new babies in a family usually a sign of great joy? Not, not in his case. Nathan the prophet brought a stiff indictment against him. You are the man, said Nathan. You did this. You killed Uriah. You stole his wife. You tried to cover up your sin. Your hands are full of blood. You, 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 you did it. David listened. And what a relief. What a relief. The truth was finally out. The secret was no longer hidden. Verse 5, when then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 5. In Psalm 51, he says it this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. You know, by all rights, David should have been executed for these sins. Adultery, murder. Both of them were capital offenses in Israel carrying the death penalty. There was no restitution for these sins. God had said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the penalty. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He's admitting this. David is saying, there's, there's nothing I can do to, to make this right. I did it. I'm guilty. Nobody oh, goes on to say in Psalm 51, verse 16, the sacrifices of God, this is what you're looking for, God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, that you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. So repentance is the biblical response to God awakening the soul to the guilt of sin. And it opens the door for sinners to run to God for forgiveness and cleansing. No one does this on their own. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 tells us, that we should pray for the obstinate and stubborn. Well, that was, that was David for quite a long time with regard to these two sins. Pray for the obstinate and stubborn in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Acts 11, verse 18. Repentance isn't theirs to offer to God. They need to pray to God that God will give it to them. Acts 11, verse 18 calls it a repentance unto life. God uses the guilt of our sin to torment us, to disturb us like David, to the point where we are willing to admit our sin. And that ought to be our prayer, that the Spirit would disturb our sleep today, that God would awaken our conscience and point us solely to Jesus and his blood, and any other attempt to deal with your guilt will end in futility. You will remain miserable and bitter and anger, Angry, alone, and eventually dead. 
without feeling, without salvation. If your conscience is bothering you, you need to rejoice because you're not far from the kingdom of God, if that's the case. Now that brings us secondly in our outline to the power of God's forgiveness. Man's attempts, futile. God's power is what we need. First thing you'll note is that forgiveness addresses real and imagined sin and guilt. Just as we saw with guilt and guilt feelings, that guilt is firstly tied to the objective truth of real sin. And so forgiveness is firstly objective and it is tied to real sin. The backpack on Pilgrim's shoulders in the story of Pilgrim's Progress consisted of the weight of real sin. Everywhere he went, he trudged along inhibited and slowed down by the weight. He didn't just feel that he was guilty. He was guilty. And no amount of effort on his part, even listening to the good intentions of some fellow travelers, nothing changed. In fact, the longer he bore the burden, the heavier it got, you'll remember. The pathway became more difficult to negotiate. The hills were steeper. The impediments, both physical and spiritual, tripped him up time and time again. He took some dangerous detours off the main path. That delayed his spiritual progress, but he did it anyway. Evangelist, the preacher of the gospel, warned him about straying from the path, but that didn't concern him. He learned the hard way that no one could help him with his burden of guilt, but God, and in particular, God the Son on the cross. And there at Mount Calvary, something totally unexpected occurred. His backpack, full of real sin, rolled off from his shoulders, and away, away, down the hill, away, away, it went, leaving Christian free in body and free in spirit. Now how is it that the cross of the Savior had such an effect upon Christians? The author of Hebrews compares animal sacrifices with that of Jesus' sacrifice. Here's what he says. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hebrews 9 verse 14. That's what the blood of Christ does. It cleanses our consciences. Or again, John says, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So it is the, this purification which indicates that God has forgiven us. Jesus makes atonement for the sin. God does not ignore the sin. He deals with the sin. The wages of sin is death, says the Bible. And so God paid those wages to his son for every person whom the son represents. Never think that God is lenient towards sin. He's not lenient towards sin. He deals with it. He doesn't set aside his law, his standard, just because it's his son that's in the grip of 
paying for the sin. There's no mitigation here. Whatever the law requires, the son is going to pay. Whatever the law requires, God is going to pay. Well, who does the son represent? He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. John 6, verse 37 and verse 40. The blood of Jesus represents everyone who comes to him through repentance and faith. And if you come, Jesus has these words of assurance for you that I just read. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given, but raise them up at the last day. John 6, verse 39. Think of, the, think of some of the notorious characters in the Bible whose sins have been forgiven by Christ. David's sin, in our text here, is sins of adultery and murder, two biggies. But there are many more. Zacchaeus was a little man, but he was a big thief. He robbed people. He extorted. Read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you might be shocked to read verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Matthew 1 verse 5. And verse 6 says... Jesse, the father of King David. So Rahab is in King David's genealogy. Who's Rahab? She was a prostitute. Residing in the city of Jericho. Whose worship switched to God from idols when Israel came into the promised land. We read from the writer of Hebrews, By faith, by faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Hebrews 11, verse 31. While she wouldn't have welcomed the Hebrew spies had she not been converted to the Hebrew God. And that's the point. In the day of Jesus, the Pharisees hauled a half-naked woman before him, saying, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. John 8, verse 4. Well, how embarrassing, how indicting. There was no way for this woman to weasel her way out of, of being caught. She was caught in the act. She was as guilty as she could be. And the result, according to the law, was that she should be stoned to death. But Jesus says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. John 8, verse 7. And one by one, they all left until there was no accusers left. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. John 8, verse 11. Sexual sins play a heavy role in the guilt people experience in their lives. If they have engaged in premarital sexual relationships or pornography, particularly men, or any number of other immoral acts, the conscience under conviction can drive you to the brink of insanity. These are people who are guilty of real sexual sins. 
They've been cleansed and forgiven by Christ, but it still haunts them. And what about those people who have imagined themselves as sinners in these areas? If a person has been a victim of sexual sin, such as rape or incest, they're not guilty of sin, but they still feel guilty. What's the problem? The dilemma is that people can be guilty of real sin and not feel guilty. And there are people who have not sinned at all, but they feel guilty. Much of this has to do with how trained the conscience is in biblical knowledge. Those groomed in Christian teaching know, that is, the conscience has been enlightened to realize that God forbids sexual expression outside of marriage. So if they engage in such things, their conscience convicts them, and rightly so. The tragedy is those people who have sinned against the victims of sexual abuse. And by the way, they're in the Bible. Dinah, daughter of Jacob, was raped by Shechem the Hivite, Genesis 34, verse 12. Tamar, daughter of David, was raped by her own half-brother and then discarded like a bag of garbage, 2 Samuel 13. Tamar, another daughter-in-law of Judah, was raped by him because he thought she was a prostitute because she was dressed like one, Genesis 38. The scandal came when she was found to be pregnant with his child and God vindicated her and condemned Judah. So victims of these kinds of sin become angry and they become bitter and they withdraw and they become timid because they sense something of the shame that has been showered upon them by the wickedness of others. They feel used and abused. They feel guilty when they are not guilty. They feel dirty when they are not unclean. What's the problem? They don't feel forgiven, even when they are. Not for what was done to them, but they feel sinful. You notice how I've been using the word feelings, feelings, feelings? Our culture uses that word all the time. And what it tends to do is it tends to blunt truth. Well, I just feel that that was wrong. I just feel that was the right thing to do. Who cares what you feel? What's the truth? Where's the objective standard of right and wrong? It is God's word. So that's the next point. Truth first, feelings second. Always keep it that way. Truth first, feelings second. How does God want us to live in a world that is full of wickedness? A world that's full of sin, much of which we are truly guilty of through our own actions. That's real guilt for real Sin, But secondly, also, not guilty because of the actions of others perpetrated against us. So there's no sin on our part, but we have guilt feelings. The solution for both is the same. It doesn't matter if you are guilty of breaking God's law and your conscience condemns you as guilty, 
or if you are not guilty because you were a victim of someone else's sin, but you still feel guilty. What do we do about that? Well, the solution is the same. And Paul gives it in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What? Crucified with Christ? That's what we do with guilty people, right? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Well, crucifixion, as you know, was a Roman form of execution. And it was reserved for the worst kind of criminals guilty of the worst crimes. The law of God, however, stands above any indictment that could be meted out by Rome. And it declares if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree... You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. The curse of God here indicates something worse than death. A criminal is put to death for a capital offense, that's what's being talked about, but after he's stoned to death, which was the Jewish way of execution, he is hung on a tree. And he is already dead when he's hung on a tree. The sentence for his crime has been carried out, but the display on the tree shows he's under God's curse. What I'm saying is that the curse is worse than the physical death. It's a penalty beyond the stoning. It's a penalty that throws a person into the abyss of God's lake of fire. The second death, the death of the soul, separated from the forgiveness of God. And God did not want such a cursed person to pollute the land. How can that be? Where's the victory? Paul writes, Christ redeemed us, that is, he bought our freedom from execution from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And they're quoting that, he's quoting that Deuteronomy text, but this is Galatians 3 verse 13. So he's saying when Jesus was nailed to that Roman cross, he took our sin and our death guilt and the curse of God upon himself he took that he died physically but he also paid the ultimate price of the second death experiencing the curse and the abandonment of God you remember he actually says that from the cross why have you abandoned me yes he died for the sin itself but also for the consequences of the sin the shame of the sin the hurt of the sin, the guilty conscience that disturbs our peace as a result of sin, the wrath of God for breaking his law, 
He died for all of that. <coughs> Nothing you ever did <coughs> Nothing done to you as regards sin. None of that is on your record if you're in Christ. Why? Because your record is clean. Your record is forgiven. You, as Paul said of himself, have been crucified with Christ. I could put it this way. Sinful you is dead. Dirty you is clean. Guilty you is exonerated. It's just as though the Romans had nailed you to the cross and executed you. And figuratively, they did. Because Jesus is the stand-in substitute for all who repent and believe. Now, the question is, do you believe that this happened, that this occurred? Do you accept that this was an actual historical event with spiritual outcomes for you? And here's where your faith must come alive. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Now you might respond, but I still feel guilty. I don't feel forgiven. Here again is where we must come back. Truth first, feeling second. Faith or trust is to be put in, thus saith the Lord, regardless of the doubts that God could love us so as to wipe the slate clean. The penalty's been paid, folks, in Christ. The slate has been wiped clean. And it doesn't matter that you don't feel like it is. Do you know you have an enemy for, of our soul? that doesn't want you to feel forgiven, that wants you to walk around all the time with a mopey look on your face and discouragement in your heart. You have an enemy of your soul that wants that. And that's my third point, that Satan is the promoter of doubt and lying accusations. Most of us would acknowledge that we get ourselves into trouble with sin because Satan lures us, using the lusts of our flesh, to entice us to sin. We see him as the tempter. And believe me, he is all of that and more. But beyond the work of tempting us to sin, Satan's primary work against believers is accuser. He's called the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night. Revelation 12, verse 10. The Greek word here is two words put together. Greeks are famous for doing that. Kata, meaning against, and goreo, a complaint. Thus, to complain against. That's what an accuser is. He complains against. The interesting part of this word 
It is that it is used in judicial hearings. It's a court scene where formal charges are brought before a judge. A Satan comes before God, the judge of the universe, and he files formal complaints against you and me day and night. He accuses you of sin. Well, guess what? You are a sinner. He accuses me of sin. Well, guess what? I am a sinner. Where's my defense? He magnifies your guilt, and you feel the weight of that guilt. He condemns you to die, and you deserve to die. He condemns me to die, and I deserve to die. He paints the picture black as coal, and the portrait is accurate. We are black in our sin. For once, <laughs> the liar is telling the truth. Ah, but not the whole truth. So help him, God. There's a lie in disguise. Most important part of the story, he leaves that out. Paul says, what shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who's he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, writes Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, you're going to be sure the devil's trying to do that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Is that going to separate us from Christ? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, hello Satan, none of these can separate us neither the present nor the future nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation nothing will be able to separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord romans 8 31 through 39 wonderful text to read not only to read but to meditate upon one of the reasons behind satan's accusations is to exonerate himself as the rebel kicked out of heaven and to paralyze you from living a joyous and victorious life for Christ. And he does this by making you feel guilty for sin, whether it's real or imaginary, from which you have been totally and forever forgiven. That's fact, not feeling. He wants to make you waver in your faith, to doubt the love of God, and most definitely doubt the power of God. Scripture puts it this way, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, 
Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For, here's the reason, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, Christ, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows what? What does he know? He knows that his time is short. Not yours. That his judgment is impending. Not yours. The conclusion, conclusion is this. If Jesus shed blood, is, if his shed blood is your testimony, it is what you are, if it's what you're trusting to deal with your sin, then God has forgiven you. No accusation can stand. And so I challenge you to live your life in the glory of the fact that your feelings, they'll catch up with the truth. Remember, facts first, feelings second. Believe first. And then your emotions will be attached to the truth. We fight Satan with God's word, which he cannot stand. That's where our guilt is dealt with. It's in Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessing upon us. Uh, we have an enemy of our soul. Yes, he's a tempter. He will solicit us to sin and loves it when he can get us to sin. More than that, he is a he is an accuser. He brings before God our sin. And he has our he has his lists. And he attempts in doing so to so discredit us that God would denounce us and throw us out of his kingdom. But that doesn't happen because the work of Christ at Calvary was eternal. And he took all the penalty for our sin. The sin was not simply swept under the carpet. It was dealt with. And if Christ died for our sins and went to hell for our sins and paid the price for our sins, then the sin is covered. And the person for whom Christ did these things cannot be held responsible to make his own payments. The sin is dealt with. Now we who know thee often feel guilty because we are sensitive to our sin. I pray this morning you'll help us to see that it's the forgiveness of God and it's the work of Christ at Calvary that deals with sin once and for all. This is the truth, the whole truth. 
And so our feelings may not have caught up yet with what we know. Or in knowing these things, we haven't meditated upon them sufficiently enough to be at peace. So we're still agitated. We're kind of like David. Our conscience is still bothering us. But when David finally got to the point where he confessed his sin to you, he sensed the forgiveness. He sensed that your grace was upon him. He was going, able to go on with his life. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us that way too. Why do we keep punishing ourselves for something that's been punished and eradicated in our lives through Christ? Help us not to fall into the trap of the evil one. Give us that victory we need. Let us say, as Jesus said, Satan, get behind me. Get behind me. He said that to Peter because Peter was being used by Satan to do that which is evil. Lord, I pray that you'll seal in our hearts the truth that the way God deals with sin is not through denial. It is not through sweeping it under the carpet. It's not through leniency. He deals with sin by paying all of the price that your law requires. And he paid the price in Jesus. Thank you, dear Lord. We pray with thanksgiving. Amen. From Trinity Hymnal, number 486. 486 in Trinity. We'll stand as we sing.